We, uh, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth that is in it. We thank you that it is uh, the most relevant book in the world as we look at crisis and as we look at leadership, which was alive in the life of Nehemiah. Um, that's where we are. That's where we are as a nation. And we thank you for the truth that you have transmitted to us, that you have carefully watched over down through the centuries, and that we have access to it. Uh, Lord, would you, um, would you tailor this uh, to each of our specific needs? Uh, we always come in from different places and from different situations and from and from different circumstances, some of, uh, some of great joy and rejoicing and, and some of great disappointment and, uh, and hurt and pain. But wherever we are, Lord, we need you. And uh, we understand that all that we have comes from you. Give us a perspective tonight that we won't get anywhere else except in your word. Help us to embrace it. Help us to meditate on it. Help us then to take it and apply it to our thinking tonight, throughout this week, help us to enjoy you and to enjoy your word because you're in charge of every circumstance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, Mary uh, and I last night after watching uh, Al Gore give the State of the Union address, it was funny. Uh, I was kind of wired, and so was Mary, and there was really no, we didn't want to watch all the commentary on it. I said, hey, you got a, is there a movie or something we can watch? And so she started going through the drawer of the old VCRs. She said, hey, here's Patton. I haven't seen that in a long time. <laughs> That's what she said. I said, well, put, let's throw it in there. Let's watch it. So we watched Patton after the State of the Union address last night. <laughs> there was no reason. There, I mean, we hadn't thought it through. It was just, it was just impulse. But it was interesting because I wasn't too far into Patton when I began to, um, I, I began to see some things, and I began to uh, make some observations. Uh, Patton is about George Patton, one of the great commanders of World War II, and and as I was watching that, I was starting to process different things, and and I was remembering how we got into World War II and what the situation was prior to World War II. Uh, Churchill was, um, was in the political wilderness, but it was his lone voice in England that in the 30s was warning the people of England about a, uh, about a tyrant who was out of his mind, who had no morality, who would stop at nothing to destroy people and destroy human life and take over the world. Uh, and they laughed at him. They wouldn't listen to him. They made attempt after attempt to appease him, um, and it didn't work. I was reminded of Hegel's quote, history teaches us that men never learn from history. It was ironic after watching that State of the Union address. It was ironic uh, to see uh, Ted Kennedy during that address refusing to get up at certain points, especially when his father was one of the great appeasers. <laughs> Did you hear that? Who is that guy? Lowell. Lowell said he couldn't get up. That's pretty good. You're, you're tough, Lowell. Uh, I was also reminded of the fact, as I was uh, uh, watching Patton, I was reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, what, 50, 60 years now passed since, uh, since World War II. And I was reminded of the fact of how God sovereignly works in the affairs of men. Uh, last week, in talking about Nehemiah, we, we made a couple of observations. We actually made three. Number one, it is God who assigns you to your post of leadership. Uh, the second observation we made was it is God who oversees the process that develops your leadership. That includes ups and downs. That includes setbacks. That includes victories. That includes disappointments. But God is sovereign over all those things that make us into the men that he wants us to be. And then thirdly, we... Uh, observe the fact that it is God who oversees the process of promoting a leader. And if you're familiar with Patton, you know that at a certain point, uh, he, was leading the, uh, he was leading the Third Army, 
But at a certain point, he walked into a hospital full of wounded men, uh, and there was a guy there who, uh, who was uh, crying because uh, he broke in battle, and Patton got upset and uh, told him to get out of there, slapped the guy, and because of that, because he said this is an honorable place and you're dishonorable, and because of that, uh, he was demoted, and he was sent back to England. Uh, while he was in England, the German spies were convinced that they were bringing Patton back to plan the European invasion. And uh, they were convinced, the Germans, that it was gonna, going to come at Kalai. And uh, 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 why else would you pull Patton back? This was all a ploy. You don't take your greatest general and, and demote him for slapping a private. Uh, but that's indeed what happened. Uh, as we know now, later in history, the invasion was not going to come at Kalai, it was going to come at Normandy. And it did come at Normandy. But even after it came at Normandy, you see the Germans had all their troops at Kalai, and they refused, even after they were hit at Normandy, to move the troops down because they were so convinced Patton was going to lead the invasion through Kalai that they said Normandy is a diversion. They never did move their troops. We broke through. Then Patton was taken over, and he led the uh, charge into Germany. Uh, God is sovereign over the events of history. God is sovereign over the circumstances of history. Uh, biblical Christians have always understood that and taken comfort from that. Uh, it is God who uh, raises up rulers. It is God who sets them down. And we look at the events as they unfold, and we're just kind of startled, and we're sort of surprised at times by, by what happens. Uh, Patton, who was not a believer, he had a twisted theology, uh, could not understand why he was taken off the front line for a period of time. But it was for a purpose, and it was for a reason that God ultimately used. He was used as a decoy, most frustrating thing in the world for him. Uh, God does assign leaders to their posts. That's not only true of political leaders, it's true of any leader. It's true of any man. Where you are right now is where God has assigned you. You may not be there in six months, but you're there for now. Uh, you may be there another 25 years. But, but, but God, none of this stuff happens to us by chance. God is a sovereign God who rules. There was something said last night in, uh, in Al Gore's State of the Union address. And, and as you know, Al Gore didn't make the State of the Union address. And we thank Almighty God for that. <laughs> At least I do. Um, where's the State of the Union address? I bought the New York Times today because they always have the complete text. Um, <clears throat> why, why, um, why, was, uh, why did Al Gore not make, why did he not make the State of the Union address last night? Because you see, he won the popular vote in this nation. He got more of the popular vote than Bush did. Uh, well, it's because the Supreme Court stepped in and made a decision that Bush won the presidency. When I say the Supreme Court, I don't mean the United States Supreme Court. I mean the Supreme Court, who rules over the United States Supreme Court. In our nation, we have a Supreme Court. But let me say a word about the Supreme Court. They're not. <laughs> I'm speaking of the United States Supreme Court. Now, they've been set up by Almighty God in this nation, but the Supreme Court of the United States is not the Supreme Court. One day, every one of those justices who serve on the Supreme Court will make an appearance at the Supreme Court. There is a God who rules over all. It's become a, a tradition uh, for any president to end his speech by saying what? God bless, America. God bless America. Bush didn't say that last night. Here's what he said. He said, the liberty we prize is not America's gift to the world, it is God's gift to humanity. We Americans have faith in ourselves, but not in ourselves alone. We do not claim to know all the ways of providence, capital P, yet we can trust in them placing our confidence in the loving God behind all of life and all of history. May he guide us now, and may God continue to bless the United States 
of America. There's theology right there. There is biblical Christianity right there. Uh, not unlike what Nehemiah believed. There was a sovereign God who was running the affairs of men, all men. There is a God who has a plan, a plan that will not be thwarted, a plan that will not be interrupted. So therefore, God is never surprised. God is never shocked. God is never worried. God is never exhausted because of the emotional energy that it takes to run the world. Uh, the reason I said I, what I did about Al Gore is that I don't think he'd make that statement biblically. You see? Uh, it was discussed last night about the importance of getting rid of partial birth abortion. This little baby that we prayed for. Uh, hey, let me tell you something. Many babies that size uh, never make it because they're aborted. You see, partial birth abortion takes a full-term baby. Full-term. The, uh, the doctor then uh, has this full-term baby, uh, jams scissors in its head, you put a catheter into its brains, and they're sucked out. That's monstrous. How could you ever support someone who believes in that? If you do, you better check out your biblical priorities. That's not a political statement, it's a biblical statement. Now, on that light note, Let's go to Nehemiah. Because you see, Nehemiah understood that God was sovereign. And Nehemiah understood that he was in the position that he was in by the sovereignty and grace and goodness of God. Uh, something that you can count on when you're a leader is that you will face a crisis. That's why you're a leader and that's why you're there. Do we know what the crises are that are ahead of us? No. But God knows. Uh, as we looked at last week, God oversees the process of the developing a leader. He'll take a leader through the fire. He'll take a leader through uh, a number of different situations to test that leader, to see if that leader can be trusted, and to see if that leader can be promoted. So God will test your integrity. God will test your obedience. God will test your love for the truth. Uh, God will often test you to see if you love integrity over money. If you love holiness over compromise, he'll put you through fire. He'll put you in crises. He'll put you in situations where you're stripped of everything. He'll put you in situations, unless he comes through, you will fail. Uh, that's the fire of adversity that God takes men through to develop them and to make them into the men that he wants them to be. And then he puts them at a particular post, which you've been prepared for all your life, and when you get in that post, at some point, you're going to face a crisis. You'll face more than one crisis. This is where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was in crisis. In Nehemiah chapter 1, and we looked at the first four verses last week, and the week before, we kind of did an overview of the whole Old Testament to understand the context of where Nehemiah fit in. Uh, let's just begin with verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. This is uh, kind of November, December-ish. All right? He nails it for us. I was in Susa, the capital. Uh, he was in Susa, the capital, although he was a Jew, because the Jews uh, had been overtaken by the Babylonians, the nation of Judah, because of their sin, which had gone on for hundreds of years, and their unwillingness to obey God. God sends in the Babylonians to take them off into captivity. He's in Susa, the winter palace. Um, and then the Medes and Persians took over the Babylonians. Now, he's in Susa, which is the winter palace. So he's not in Jerusalem, but his heart is in Jerusalem. Uh, while he's in Susa, the capital, Hanani, one of my brothers and some men from Judah, his home country, which he was exiled from. He's some 800 miles to the east now. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned um, with fire. So he doesn't get a good report. Uh, uh, suddenly there's a crisis. 
You know what's interesting? This is just one day in Nehemiah's life. These guys uh, come back. Maybe he has coffee with them. Maybe he has dinner with them. And he says, hey, tell me what's going on in Jerusalem. Because you see, some of the exiles had started to return. Under Zerubbabel, they went back to, to rebuild the temple. Not a temple in its grandeur like the temple that Solomon had, but it was a temple. And then under Ezra, years later, they went back because Ezra was going to teach the law and they had to understand the basis for their civilization and for what God had called them to do. So you had some 50,000 that were back there. And he says, how are things going? How are they doing? He doesn't get a good report. Um, this report that he, that he got that was not good, that was negative, changed his whole life. Did he know that when he got up that morning? Now, he was a cupbearer to the king, as we looked at last week. The cupbearer to the king was a man of tremendous influence. Uh, the cupbearer was not just the guy who would sip the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned and eat his food, but the cupbearer was a trusted confidant. Uh, the cupbearer was a man of tremendous influence because he was trusted by the king. Uh, he was not from that original country. He was from an outside country so that there would be no political aspirations for him to become king. Um, uh, they were trusted financially. Uh, there is some historical indicators that the cupbearers uh, functioned as, as the chief financial officers. They had tremendous political clout. They had tremendous political influence. Uh, this guy is in the inner sanctum. This guy is in the Oval Office. This guy has a tremendous position of influence and power. When he got up that morning, as far as he knew, that's where he'd be for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Isn't it amazing how our life can change in just one day? I think it was Warren Wearsby who said, uh, the biggest doors swing on the smallest of pivots. Our, our, our whole lives can be changed by one phone call. Our, our whole lives can be changed in one day, one meeting, um, one conversation. That's happened to you, it's happened to me. You look back over your life, and there have been... Uh, uh, key encounters like it, Nehemiah had with these guys, there, have been, there, there has been a meeting, there has been a, uh, a conversation, and your life has never been the same since. That's part of God's plan. God oversees that. None of those appointments are by accident. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. This guy's whole life was about to change. Because what he, he hey, how are things going in Jerusalem? And he gets a report and the report isn't good. Uh, as a matter of fact, what's going on is that there's crisis. There's great crisis with the, with the people that have gone back. Um, you can sum it up this way. There was a crisis with the remnant. There was a crisis because of the ruins. The, the wall and the gates had been torn down. There was no protection. They were absolutely vulnerable. Uh, and because of that, there was great reproach. They didn't even have the resources to build a wall to protect the temple. They were completely at risk from enemies and from invaders. This was a crisis situation. This is where his heart was. He loved these people. Um, he was deeply disappointed to hear this. Now notice the reaction. Verse 4. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he begins to pray. He begins to seek God because of this crisis. Um, uh, years ago, I read that the Chinese word for crisis is comprised, you know, Chinese isn't like our cursive writing, but, but it is it comes from two different words. Uh, the Chinese drawing or letters for crisis comes from two other words. The first one is the word, it comes from the word opportunity. Uh, the second one is the word danger. That's crisis. Uh, usually when crisis hits, the first thing that comes in our mind is not opportunity. The first thing that comes in our mind is danger. Uh, we, look at, we look at the threat. We look at, uh, at what's gone wrong. When, when Nehemiah, when he heard what happened, it threw him into great crisis. 
uh, th this guy had a love for these people. He had a love for the Jews. He had a love for God. He had great sorrow or, over what had happened in the past. God, in his grace and mercy, had given them a new start and a new opportunity. But it wasn't working. It, it, it was stalled. It was, uh, uh, it was not progressing. And so this throws this guy into, into, into great crisis. Was there danger? Yeah. The people who were there were absolutely vulnerable. They could be, they could be taken in a minute. And he knew that. But see, with every crisis, and some of you guys are in crisis. You've got a crisis going on in your life, in some area of your life. Is there danger? Yeah, there's danger. Yeah. It, wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a crisis if there wasn't danger. But see, what we fail to forget is that there's always an opportunity. Because there's a God in heaven who has a plan and has a design and who loves to bring good out of negative situations. There's, there's a God who loves to step in. And, and we know that he steps in, which is why we pray, and this is why we seek God. So if you find yourself in a, in a, in a crisis, uh, you're probably struggling with some sleep, you're probably worrying with, have some anxiety and some worry and some concern, we see the threat. But when you step back and you look at the big picture, you see there's always great opportunity. Uh, uh, history is the story of crisis after crisis after crisis. But isn't it amazing how we can look at history and see opportune moments and see, um, see positives that come out of the crises of history? Because God's overseeing it. Here's the other thing. Whenever there's a crisis, God has his leaders in place. Leaders are just not there randomly. Patton wasn't just there randomly. Eisen, have you ever thought about this? Uh, the forces that we had, the generals that we had, where'd those guys come from in World War II? So you had Eisenhower, you had Marshall, you had, uh, uh, you had Patton, you had uh, Bradley. You had all these different guys. You had Wild Bill Donovan trying to do the Air Force thing and all that stuff. It started the CIA, you know, back then when we needed intelligence. Is that just by chance that those guys just were on the scene at that particular moment? No. No, because, see, God rules over the affairs of men. He really does. Um, he doesn't rule over phones, but he rules over men. Theological slip. Now here's, and God's always done that. He's always done it. Um, I was reading about uh, Robert Cheeseboro recently. He was a guy that uh, uh, lived in the 1860s. Uh, right after the Civil War, he, uh, uh, he had uh, he started a kerosene business, and it just fell flat, almost bankrupted him. Then he heard about an opportunity uh, up in Pennsylvania, that they'd struck oil, and uh, by the time he got up there, oil was about 20 bucks a barrel, which would be like 400 bucks a barrel today. Uh, he got up there too late. He was disappointed. He thought it was his one shot to turn things around. Uh, he was in a crisis. He couldn't support his family. Uh, he was about to go under financially, and uh, it was really devastating to him because by the time he got to Pennsylvania and people were making money hand over fist, I mean, there was, there was no money. Uh, to be had, and there was no money to invest, and the price was just way beyond him, and he figured he'd missed his opportunity. He was uh, talking with some guys, drinking coffee with them, some guys that were actually working on this oil rig, and they mentioned to him that uh, there, was this, there was this stuff, there was this sludge that kept coming up. They'd have this oil, but uh, th th this stuff was, they didn't know even what it was called, they call it rod wax because they would actually use it to lubricate the rod. And, and what some of the guys began to realize who had been cut and who had been scratched, that when that rod wax got on their hand within like a day or two, suddenly their hand had been, was healed up and they couldn't believe it. Uh, he took a gallon of that rod wax and uh, he found a basement and he started working with stuff. And over the next six, seven, eight months, what he would do is he'd get up in the morning and he would light a match and he would burn a section of his hand or he would take a knife and slice his hand or slice a portion of his skin. And then what he would do is he would take that rod wax uh, and he would put it on and then he would take careful, meticulous notes to see how long it took for the wounds to heal. Uh, and then what he did was that he realized that this had some amazing properties, so he coined his own word that came from 
knew I was going to forget this. That came from a German word and a Greek word. The German word means water. The, the, the other word meant olive oil. And out of those two words, a Greek and a German word, he came up with the word Vaseline and began to sell this stuff. And he would travel all through Pennsylvania and New York, and he had, he had his product. And what he would do is he would burn himself, he would cut himself, he would put the wound on, and he'll say, now, folks, I'm going to be in town a week. And I want you to come back on Tuesday. I want you to come back on Thursday, and I want you to see how this works. And before long, he was selling a bottle every minute. Every day, every 20. He was selling a bottle every second. Um, the guy was in crisis, and an opportunity came his way. I don't know if he knew the Lord, but you know what? That's especially true in a believer's life. Nehemiah was in a tremendous crisis. Uh, we think danger, but there's always opportunity. Now, let me say this. I want to emphasize this. God prepares men to be at their post before the crisis comes. That's what he did with Nehemiah. He prepares us. He gets us ready. When he puts us in a leadership role, he has put you there because he has designed you to handle the crisis. It's going to feel like it's beyond you. It's going to feel like it's over your head. But God is sovereign over, over crisis. So Nehemiah is in crisis. So what does he do? Well, what he immediately begins to do is that he immediately begins to call out to God. Let's note verse 5. And, and I want you to note how this guy prays. It says, he sat down in verse 4. He mourned for days. Uh, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Um, it, it seems to me that whenever in the, in the Old Testament there would be a great crisis, they would begin not to just pray, they would begin to fast and pray. We talked about fasting here one night, just briefly. Uh, all fasting is, is, uh, is a, um, the time that it would take to prepare a meal. There's such a crisis that instead of taking that time, you just simply take that time to go before the Lord. Uh, in Esther, uh, Esther had an event that happened 25 years before where she was the queen. Uh, he did not know that she was a Jew. Uh, Haman, who hated uh, Mordecai, who was her uncle, decided to get back at Mordecai, decided to get back at all the Jews, and they were going to exterminate the Jews. Uh, when the news came that Haman had passed that law, you know what the Jews did? They began to pray and they began to fast. Uh, you look at Hezekiah. You go further on up. Hezekiah, when he was threatened by an invading army, he prayed and he fasted. So in times of great crisis, it's not unusual to go before God uh, because, because your life's on the line. Um, that's what was happening here. Daniel, when, when the king had a dream and demanded that it be interpreted, but he said, I won't tell you the dream, I want you to tell me the dream, and then interpret it. And then he decided he'd start killing off his advisors one by one. What did Daniel do? Daniel went to the Lord, and he prayed, and he fasted. Times of great crisis, that's what they would do. Notice what this, notice, I want you to notice this prayer. So first of all, you've got Nehemiah's crisis, then you've got Nehemiah's call. And when I say call, I mean prayer. Um, when, when, you're in, when you're in crisis, it's not a normal prayer. When you're in crisis, you're not praying, um, how do I say this? You're, you're not praying uh, even keel, your emotions are involved, uh, your heart's involved, there's great pressure. That's, that's what's happening here. He said, and I said, I beseech thee, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine, let thine ear now be attentive, and thine ear open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night. See, this is a crisis. You've had those times where you're just, you're just praying. Every, every, every spare moment, you're going before God. We're praying day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. Um, you, you know, prayer, uh, pr 
prayer is to the Christian life what oxygen is to the body. And a lot of times, we don't realize that when we first come to the Lord. Uh, to be a man that functions well, and to be a man that's in tune with God, and to be a man who's giving the leadership that God has uh, given you to perform, uh, prayer is essential. I think it was John Trapp, the old Puritan, that says, the man who cannot pray, let him go to sea, and there he will learn to pray. Now, he said that in the 1700s. He's not talking about getting on the Queen Elizabeth. He's talking about getting on these little, I mean, you, you've seen some of these ships, you know, in Boston Harbor or somewhere, and you say, I can't believe these people get on those things. I mean, they, I mean, they're, they're hey, they, you, got, you, you got boats in Lake Louisville bigger than those suckers that they came over, the Pilgrims and all those guys came over on. How did, and they would get in the Atlantic, and, 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 and many would die. It was not unusual for people to die on these voyages. Uh, George Whitfield, the great Puritan preacher, crossed the Atlantic 17 times, preaching in England and preaching in America. Uh, uh, Whitfield was an interesting dude because when the storms would come up and, and even the sailors would go below deck, he would strap himself on on deck and he loved to see the power and glory of God at work. I'm not quite there yet. And he would pray, and he would sing hymns, and he would give glory to God to see his power displayed. Amazing. So you don't know how to pray? Go to sea. You'll learn how to pray. Why? Because you'll get in a crisis at sea. And it won't be long before you'll be calling out to Almighty God to sustain you. You'll be calling out to him day and night for this crisis to come to an end. A lot of times, as men, we get into a crisis um, and we don't pray. That's a mistake. John Bunyan, in his book on prayer, said this. Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me do that again. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you pray. You see, prayer is the first thing. Prayer is the very first thing that we do. When there is a crisis, the thing that makes sense is to call out to God. Uh, and Nehemiah calls out to him, and I want you to note how he describes God. He says uh, in verse 5, he says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He begins, he begins by by appealing and describing the character of God. He's the great and awesome God. Uh, within that means he's the sovereign God. He's the God who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the God who is surprised by nothing. He's the God who rules over all the events of men. He is the God who has a plan. He is the God who is in charge. Um, your, your view of God and your theology of God and how big God is, is critical when you pray. Uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a book 30 years ago called Your God is Too Small. For most of us, our God is too small. Uh, you, you want to enlarge your, uh, your perception and your view of God? Uh, get a hold of a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And that's a book that Packer did, and each chapter just talks about a different attribute of God. It's just soaked in Scripture. I think I've read that book 18 times. And I, for a while there, I, I would try to read it once a year because, because I wanted my grasp of God, I wanted, I wanted it to get larger. I didn't want God to get smaller, I wanted him to get bigger. Because you see, the older we get, and the more responsibility we have, and the more crises we face, we better understand that God is big and we are not. Uh, there is great uh, comfort in the fact that, that God is sovereign and that God is in charge and that God is running the show. Um, we have a lot of churches that are what are called seeker-sensitive churches. And uh, the motivation is good because they want people who don't know Christ, they want to appeal to them, and they want them to come in. What tends to happen in churches that are seeker-sensitive 
and driven by reaching out to unbelievers is they tend to ratchet down the level of truth. They tend just to lay out milk. They tend just to lay out pablum because it's young, immature people coming in. Um, that's a mistake. Because if you're fed just a constant diet of Gerber's, if you're fed just a constant diet of formula, when the crises and storms of life, when you have twins born and one of them dies, how are you going to handle that? Well, it depends on your view of God. Well, if you just have an uh, elementary kindergarten level of God and don't understand that God is sovereign over all things and that sometimes God works in ways that we don't understand, yet God is still sovereign and he can be trusted even when it doesn't make sense to us because his character is holy and God cannot be unjust and God cannot sin. So even though this hurts us and disappointments, disappoints us, God is not wrong in what he has done. Now, if you don't have a bigger grasp of God, you're not going to process that way and you're going to struggle deeply. This guy knew the scriptures. This guy knew who God was. This guy had a sense of the power and control and providence of Almighty God. How great a sense of that do you have in your life? That's your rock. That's what, that's what enables you to keep your feet under you when you're getting hammered and when you're getting beat up. He calls him, he calls him the great and awesome God. Um, Here's something else he does. He appeals to him as the God, did you see that? Who preserves his covenant. God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. He'd made a covenant with the Jews. Goes back to the first Jew who was Abraham. Uh, you trace the lineage of the Jews back to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he made some promises to Abraham. What this guy does is, this guy cites the promises to God. He reminds God that God had made a covenant and God preserves the covenant. Uh, he points out, and he's really quoting here from, from, uh, from Deuteronomy 28. He says in verse 5, the God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Those are the blessings in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, notice, um, then notice down, look at verse 8. He says, remember the word. Remember the word. What's he talking about? He's talking about the covenant. A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. God never breaks a contract. God never breaks his word. You, you sign, you've done deals. You sign contracts with guys. And they'll agree with you. Yes, I said that. Yes, I do it. But I'm not going to do it. It's an amazing thing. God will never do that. So what this guy does is, in verse 8, he jumps down to verse 8 and he says, Remember the words with the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. See, that's the curses out of Genesis out of Deuteronomy 28. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's Jerusalem. He's reminding God of what God promised. So he praised the promises of God. William Gurnall said this. He said, prayer is nothing but a promise reversed. When you pray, pray the promises of God. So, are you waiting, are, are, are you waiting for God to send a job to you? Are you, waiting, uh, for, um, are you waiting for God to work in your life to move you to the next chapter of life? All right, if I'm in that position, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray Isaiah 64.4. When I pray to the Lord, I'm going to say, Lord, you said in your word, no eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Lord, I'm waiting for you, but I'm frustrated because as I'm waiting, I don't see any activity. I don't see anything happening. I'm getting frustrated, but Lord, I know you watch over your word to perform it. See, a pr prayer is a promise reversed. You, you take that promise and you hold it up to God. Um, see, that's why as we read our scriptures, you want to note the promises of God. 
and you pray the promises of God. That's what this guy is doing. God has made promises, and God will perform his promises, and there will be times in your life in a crisis as a leader when all you've got to hang on to is a promise of God that God will be faithful at, right, at the right time. Because you're in a situation where you don't see any activity. And why don't you see any activity? Because, because God is doing 10,000 things that you can't see. God's getting ready. God's putting it together. But the timing is not right yet. So what is it about prayer? Let me ask you this. If God knows all things, if God's sovereign all things, if God has a plan, then here's the question that would make a lot of sense. If God knows what's going to happen, well, then why pray? There you go. Let me, uh, Mary and I were working on a book here over the last few months, and uh, here's something she wrote in there. She said, some Christians see prayer as a magic lamp and God as a divine genie. They view prayer as a means for getting what they want, a summons to move God at their beck and call. You call it out, and he makes it happen. You speak what you want into existence. That's part of prosperity theology. They have what they call rima, and they've, they've made it into something the Bible doesn't, doesn't have, that you can speak something into existence. I remember one of the televangelists, his wife, telling a story about she passed. They were looking for a new house, and she passed the house, and she spoke into existence that God would give her that house. Let me tell you something. God's not a butler. God's not a FedEx boy. You speak into existence that I have that. You know, you, you know how you ought to pray? Lord Jesus, I need a house. I don't know what the best house. I don't know the situation. You know 10 million things I don't know. Would you put us in the right place at the right time and give us the right house? How the heck do you know that's the house you ought to have? You don't know that. That's presumptuous. That's foolish. And it's idiotic. And it's unbiblical. Okay, I'm feeling good now. <laughs> Psalm 55, 27, uh, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. You take it to him. Psalm 62, 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 9, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. See, the fact of the matter is, God is not our errand boy. God is not a genie. We pray. Why do we pray? We pray because we've been instructed to pray. God does not recommend it. He commands it. Pray then in this way. So why does God command us to pray? Obviously, we're not praying to inform him of our thoughts. He already knows our thoughts. We're not enlightening him about our needs. He already knows our needs. In fact, Jesus said in the same context, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows that you need all these things. Why then does God command us to pray? Well, let's suppose you were in a rowboat a mile or so from land. As you row back to land, it would be foolish for you to think as you row that the land is coming to you. The land isn't coming to you. You are going to the land. You can no more toss a hook and pull the land to you than you can inform or change the mind of God when you pray. What happens as you pray is that you pull yourself closer to him. See, prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you. Prayer does change things when we understand that God is the sovereign one. Why does he command us to pray? So we get close to him. And may I say this to you? Why does crisis come into our lives from time to time? To get us close to him. You know, the fact of the matter is, we can't take unalloyed prosperity. We can't take long, long uninterrupted seasons of prosperity and blessing. Because what it tends to do, what it tends to do is, um, we tend to get comfortable. I mean, I know I do. But see, when crisis comes into my life, what happens? Boom, I'm right there. God, I need you. God, I'm in over my head. I don't know how I'm going to get through this thing. So God, in his goodness, allows difficulty and hardships and situations that are bigger than us, and we see no way out, and we see no way of escape. God allows those to come into our lives to pull 
us closer to him. We're not pulling the land to us. We're getting closer to land. There's a reason you're in the crisis. Now, is it dangerous? Yeah. Because if I can, hold on, hold on, guys. You're not going anywhere, are you? I got it. All right. You ready? Listen to this. This guy, Joseph Hall, is talking about prayer. And he says, he said, when I pray, I am sure I shall receive either what I ask or what I should have asked. <laughs> That was worth pulling out, wasn't it? Yeah. Let me do that again. When I pray, I am sure I shall receive either what I ask or what I should have asked. God's going to give you what you need. Isn't it not true that you've prayed prayers in your past and you look back now and you say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for not answering that prayer? Right? He didn't give you what you asked. Why? Because it wasn't what was best for you. From your perspective, it was best. But God, time's gone by now. I said, Lord, thank you. God, thank you for being merciful and not answering that prayer. So did he not answer your prayer? No, he answered it. He just answered it with what you should have prayed. But you didn't pray. We don't know how to pray as we should, Romans says. So the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words. It doesn't say he prays through you. It says he prays for you. I got all lost now. I got to get my stuff together here. Um, there's something else this guy does. This is pretty critical when you pray. So, so we got Nehemiah's crisis. We got Nehemiah's call, his prayer. And you got Nehemiah's confession. Confession. He says, uh, he says in uh, verse 6, he says, I am praying now before thee day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servants, Moses. There's confession of sin. Uh, there, there's honesty about sin. Uh, there is a, uh, there's a willingness to call sin what it is. When you go into the presence of God, you confess your sin. Uh, he's not excusing it. He's not rationalizing it. He's not glossing over it. He's just coming out and he's laying it on the table. Lord, uh, Lord, we've sinned. And I have sinned. Um, catch this. These are from the old Puritan guys. Most of these guys I'm quoting from lived about in the 1600s. These guys knew God. These guys knew their Bibles. You know, Chuck quotes a lot from C.H. Spurgeon. You know why he does that? They called Spurgeon the last of the Puritans. When Spurgeon was a little, Spurgeon was a phenomenal preacher that was in London in like from the 18, what, 50s to like 1890-something. When Spurgeon was a little boy, he spent a lot of time in his grandfather's house, in his grandfather's library. And Spurgeon just had this ability to read. And his grandfather had all these old books from the Puritans. And when Spurgeon was a kid, those books were 200 years old. And as a little kid, he would read these books that most seminary students have trouble getting through today. He'd read John Owen. He'd read John Bunyan. And, you know, he's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. So then the guy starts preaching. and I mean, the guy's just dripping with this truth. It's, I mean, they used to say about Spurgeon, if you cut him, he'd bleed Bible. Now, this is from Thomas Brooks. Because a lot of times I think we get, when we talk about prayer, we get guilty. No, I don't pray enough. I don't know anybody who prays enough. Do you? I've met people that pray three hours a day who don't think they pray enough. Well, how the heck does that make me feel? How does that make you feel? I like this Brooks guy because he's got a lot of sense. Listen to what he says. He says, God looks not at the elegancy of your prayers to see how neat they are, nor yet at the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are nor yet at the arithmetic of your prayers to see how many they are, nor yet at the music of your prayers, nor yet at the sweetness of your voice, nor yet at the logic of your prayers, but at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. 
There is no prayer acknowledged, approved, accepted, recorded, or rewarded by God, but that wherein the heart is sincerely and wholly there. God's looking at the heart. God loves a broken and contrite heart, so he loathes a divided heart. God neither loves halting nor having. Let me say that again, not H-A-V-I-N-G. How, I can't even say that, H-A-L-V-I-N-G. God loves neither halting nor having. H-A-L-V-I-N-G. In other words, what he's saying is, God doesn't want you coming with half a heart. God doesn't, two things. God doesn't want you halting or having. What he means by that is, when there is sin in your life that's unconfessed, can you really go to the throne with confidence? No, you can't. You're going to be halting. See, that sin needs to be confessed, and God looks at the heart. And when we're broken over our sin, there's forgiveness. Uh, someone who halves a prayer, it's from half a heart. If you're making a request to God, if you're in a crisis, and you're making a request to God, but, uh, but you are consistently verbally abusing your wife and cutting her down and making her feel like a piece of dirt, you think God's going to listen to your prayer? I'm telling you, he's not. In fact, in 1 Peter 3.7, he told us he would. He says, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So a guy that, that is a jerk with his wife and doesn't honor his wife and doesn't appreciate his wife and doesn't understand his wife when she's going through stuff, and he just says, hey, get over it. I don't want to hear it. Don't bother me with this stuff. See, you're not a leader. You're a loser when you do that. You're not leading. You may think you're a leader, but you're not a leader because you're not doing your job. You're not being responsible. You're not following through. You're not honoring God. You're not honoring the Scripture. You're not honoring her. So is God going to listen to your prayers when you hit a crisis? Yeah, well, I got this wife thing over here that I'm ignoring. But, Lord, I really need you to do it. He didn't do that. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So you don't come with half a heart. You come with a whole heart, confessing your sin. Fred. How about when, let's say you, you've gone to God. Yeah. And you've asked for this. Yeah, I'm just saying that you've gone to God and you've asked forgiveness, and, but you've also sinned against someone else. Yeah. Great question. Here's what I'd say to you. If, if, if you here's what I do. I'll just tell you what, what I do. If, if I've sinned against somebody, and I go to the Lord and say, and, and, I, and, and there's a sense that I need to go and take care of that, I'm going to go take care of it. All right, now let's, let's throw out a situation where that may not be appropriate. Let's say that a guy comes to Christ, and you, know, you come to the Lord, and you think about some gal you were sexually involved with X amount of years ago, who's now married, moved on with her life, she's got kids and all that. Now, is it wise to go back and try to reconcile all that stuff in your past life? Uh, it's been years? I don't think so. See, before I do that, I get some godly wisdom. I get some counsel from other guys. I, I, think, I, I think in situations like that, if there's a question, go talk with some mature guys. Go, to, go run up by a couple guys. Give me some wisdom here. I need some help here. And I think they'll let you know. I think God will let you know through that. Right here. It appears, it appears that he did sway God's opinion. But, and see, this is where the open theist, the guys who say God doesn't know the future, 
The open theists say, well, there are times in Scripture where God, someone like Moses was praying, God will change his mind. You see? So then obviously God didn't have it set. Well, then the thing I always ask them is, let me ask you something. Did God know he was going to change his mind before he changed it? What's the answer to that? Of course he did. Because he knows he declares the end from the beginning. You have in Scripture what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropos being the Greek word for man, morphe being form. Sometimes, in order for us to understand God, God will speak of himself in anthropomorphisms, as though he has a human form. It'll talk about the arm of the Lord. Does the Lord, does, does God the Father have an arm? No, he doesn't. Do you know that God the Father cannot be seen? He is spirit. Do you know when you get to heaven, you'll never see God the Father? There's nothing to see. You'll see his glory. You'll see the radiance of his glory. God the Holy Spirit does not have a body. God the Father does not have a body. Jesus has a body because he became the God-man. But the arm of the Lord, the Lord doesn't have an arm. That's an anthropomorphism, speaking of power, speaking of, speaking of, uh, of great strength. You see? So I think when it talks about the Lord changing his mind and all that, it, it is an anthropomorphism. God knew that Moses, he knew about the people. He knew Moses was going to come back. He knew, he knew all those things. He knew it before the foundations of the world. He knew sin was going to come into the world before the foundation of the world because Jesus was the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Is that not amazing? You ever thought of that one? Jesus was the Lamb before sin was ever, was ever going to be. So don't tell me he didn't know. I think God's letting us know that when we pray, that he's a responsive God? That's a quick answer to your question. It's a very good question. You bet. It's certainly not a test of God. It would be a test of Moses. All right. Let's wrap this up. Uh, when, when we find ourselves in crisis, And I'm talking about big-time crisis. Is there danger? Yeah. You bet there's danger. But you serve a God who is in absolute control and who is in absolute charge and who loves to show his greatness and loves to show his glory and loves to show his mercy. So see, when there's crisis, there's also opportunity. And, and you know what, isn't this, isn't this just like God, when we think all is lost, he loves to come through? You know, probably, I, I'm going to say 95, somewhere in there. Uh, I've been, you know, I pastored for a number of years, and I've been doing men's ministry, and we're doing these conferences. And, and i got to tell you something, about 95, 96, I was getting exhausted, and I was getting worn out, because I, I had a staff, but they were young, they were inexperienced, and I was having to cover bases that I'm not gifted. I, was, I, would, I would go speak at a conference. I'd speak seven or eight times a weekend. There'd be administrative stuff during the week. And I was starting to wear, I was starting to wear down. I was starting to cave. And Mary was starting to get worried about me. And one night, I was talking to her, and we were talking about, I was just telling her, in fact, I hadn't even mentioned it to her because I didn't want to worry her about it, but she started asking me some questions. And I started telling her this and this and this. And it wasn't a good picture. Uh, it was wearing me down. I felt like I was not being as effective as I should be because I was having to do all these things. That I, and it, was just, it was just a frustrating time. And Mary said to me, she said, Steve, it's going to be this way until you get a guy in here that can do this, 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 and this. And I said, well, Mary, the guy you just described, the guy you just described could run a Fortune 500 company. And she said, yeah, that's right. And I'm going to tell you something, that really hacked me off. <laughs> And I got mad. And I said, well, you know what? I said, where the heck am I going to find somebody like that? And if I found them, how the heck would I pay them? I mean, those guys don't grow on trees, Mary, you know? A little displaced anger there. I was starting to take it out on her. And she said, well, well Steve, you know what? God just got to give you somebody like that. I said, yeah, that's right. That's easy for you to say. She said, no, I'm serious. You need God to give you somebody like that. I said, Mary, guys like that don't do this. I mean, the kind of guy you're talking about doesn't do what we're doing. And, you know, we, we, were, probably, we were probably averaging at that day, 850, 900 in a conference. 
but we had this real small staff and, and, and you know, and not much money, and you're just kind of making it every, every week and all that. I, and she said, well, you know, Steve, that, it just makes sense. God, God needs to give you somebody like that. She said, who do you know like that? And I said, you've got to be putting me on. She said, no, who do you know like that? And I said, well, I, I, I said, there's Dean Gage. And Dean had been president of Texas A&M and had resigned and because, over, a, over an issue where he refused to cave in on some political pressure. And I, I said, by the way, we're supposed to have lunch with Dean next Thursday. He's going to be in town. She said, you know what, Steve? You ought to challenge Dean to come on board with you. <laughs> I said, Mary, that guy ran Texas A&M. I mean, he's not, I said, that's, I said, do you think I'm going to make a fool out of myself talking to him about coming? She said, why don't we, let's pray about it, Steve. I said, Mary, you know what, this is nuts. And uh, so I said, okay, we'll pray. I was a spiritual leader, so I thought, okay, I'll pray. <laughs> but I didn't pray with my, I, you know, I didn't my juice there. And I didn't pray about it again. And that next Thursday, we were having lunch. Dean, we're just talking, you know, and it was funny because uh, we were just talking and I was hearing this guy, so he was telling me some things, and this guy had a real passion for men, and he was telling me what he was doing in his church and all that. And I said to him, some of you guys have heard this portion of the story, I said, you know, Dean, and I just kind of, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to step out on this real thin ice. And he had said some things that I could tell were his heart, and I said, you know, Dean, maybe down the road sometime God would uh, work it out for you to come on board with us. And immediately, tears came to his eyes. And I thought, man, I really offended this guy. <laughs> and he, I'll never forget, he put his head down. And he was quiet for about 30 seconds as he composed himself. And he said, you know, Steve, I've been praying for eight months that you would ask me that question. And then I got... And then I kind of got upset because I thought, you mean I've been dying for eight months? <laughs> and I, but I, said, I said, you're kidding, Dean. He goes, no. He said, I've been praying for eight months that you'd ask me about coming on board with you. I said, Dean, why didn't you tell me? He said, well, I wasn't sure if it was of the Lord. But I figured if it was, he'd let you know. And I didn't have the guts to tell him I never did get it. Mary got it. But... <laughs> And so we started talking about it, and then, a few, I mean, it was an amazing thing. And a few days later, we started figuring out, all right, if we did that, what would we need? Because, you know, we, we'd need to pay him, and, and we'd need to set up his office and change this and do some things. And we started talking about this. And about a week later, I figured out that to do all these things we need to do, office-wise, administratively, and all this stuff, go out and visit these guys, we needed about 150000 bucks. I thought, there's no way. I mean, this just isn't going to happen. And the next weekend, I was speaking at a deal and had lunch with, with a guy who brought his father. And he wanted me to meet his dad. And as we're talking, he said, his dad, I never met his dad. He said, so tell me what's going on. Tell me what you guys are doing. And I said, well, we're doing this and such and such. And he'd just been at the time. And I said, you know, we've, and I started talking about Dean, you know, a friend of mine who may be, et cetera. And he said, man, that's really, he said, man, that's unbelievable. I said, yeah, it'd really be something. And he said, well, so what's it going to take for that to happen? And I said, I didn't. And he asked me. And I said, well, we're kind of scoping that out. We're not sure if it's going to work. He said, yeah. He said, well, what, what do you? And I said, well, you know what? I've just met you. I don't really want to. He said, I know all about you. I said, what do you mean you know all about me? He said, I heard you speak at a deal for a week six years ago, a deal in Mount Hermon. He said, you remember that? And I said, well, yeah. He said, I was there the whole time. I said, I never met you. He said, I know. He said, but I heard you. He said, I know about you. I've checked you out. He said, tell me what's going on with this guy. And I said, well, we're kind of looking at this. And he said, you're probably going to need some capital to get that thing going. And I said, well, yeah, we probably will. <laughs> he said, well, my foundation will send out a check for 50000 on Monday. I said, that's amazing. But it was going to take 150. And three days later, I'm having dinner with a couple in another state, and they start asking me what's going on. And I start, you know, and I said, oh, this and this, and I, you know, I mentioned 
And they said, that's really something. That'd be amazing. Because if you had that guy, you wouldn't have to worry about this and this and this. And, and I said, yeah, and the guy would take, you know, what would it take? I said, he's going to take a huge cut and all that, obviously, and then we'd need this. And the guy said, you need to do that. And I said, well, you know, we're just kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll see. It looks like it may sort. We'll just see. He said, he said, you know, that needs to happen. And I said, well, I think it'd be great. He got up, went over, grabbed the checkbook. Handed me a check, Men's Leadership Ministry. How much was that check for? $100,000. I knew the whole time God was going to do it. No, I didn't. But I'll tell you something. My faith has grown since then because I was in a crisis. See, God works through crisis. He builds your faith in crisis. Some of you guys are in crisis tonight. You got issues in your life. You know what we're going to do? We're going to break up into threes and fours. That's what we did last week. We don't want anyone feeling uncomfortable. Or if you're your first time here, we're glad you're here. Uh, you don't know the guy next to you, maybe, or the guy around you. A lot of guys don't know the guy next to him. But we just want to give you an opportunity that if you got something on your heart, just go around the horn, introduce yourself, and the guy who's got something on his heart, say, guys, I'd like you to pray about this. You don't have to share at all. No pressure. You won't feel pressure. But before we get out of here, let's bear one of those burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And uh, that'd be, just be the right thing to do after talking about prayer, wouldn't it? Taylor? Give me a report there, Taylor, yeah. Well, I know how the Dukes are going to feel when they hear this, and it's going to be a, a great blessing. Tonight we received $1,847, and we received, received commitments of $14,395. Uh, thank the Lord for that. Last week we had received $561, and that gives a total of $16,803. Huh. And uh, they huh. can use it. Yeah, sure isn't that. that great? And I just thank you for giving that. Yeah, that's great. Lord's good, isn't he? <laughs> They're going to be thrilled to hear that. Go ahead, Taylor. There were, there were a number of the notes that said, uh, I can't give it tonight, but I will do it within the next 30 days. Yeah. So we're going to have the plates back here for you for that. And... Uh, I just appreciate your generosity, and they're going to be able, Troy and Kim are going to be able to stand up one of these days and, and yeah. tell a story like yeah. we just got through telling, and it's going to move people to think more seriously about their relationship with the Lord. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Sure. Yeah, you can, you can leave it at the reception, or you can give it to me, and I will uh, put it in that. Yeah. What, what does it relate to that it came from you? Oh, yeah, we will. Put on there that it came from you. Mm -hmm. Because we do have other funds that we've given, but I would like to see that. So tell us again, David, what well, you want us to do. I'll do on there, but up on, you know, we're down the notes. Just put from the men. From men's, men's, men's Bible study? Men's yeah. Bible study. Okay. I think that would be. Okay. That's good. He, he has uh, attended here. He hasn't this semester for right. obvious reasons, but he's, he's been a part of this. Good. Well, we thank the Lord for that. Let's break up and pray. I'll close this off, but uh, let's just go for it here, guys.